Well, good evening. Last week I was here for Family Camp 3, and I'm going to be honest, my favorite part of camp was the jet ski. It was absolutely amazing, until I heard your singing tonight, and uh, I've rarely heard anything like that. I love that. And uh, how about the musicians who are leading us? Let's thank them for that. Really, really good. My name is Chris Anderson. Uh, I've been a pastor for about 25 years. Uh, I started when I was 10. That's a lie. I'm just messing with you. But pastor for 25 years, and uh, I have kids your age and older, and I'll introduce you to my family uh, in a picture in a second. After 25 years of pastoring in Ohio, uh, and then in Georgia, Ohio, go Buckeyes. You get big Buckeye fans out here? Yeah, I, I, thought you'd, I thought you'd really love that. All right, I'm, I'm a Big Ten fan, though. So generally, Big Ten fan, that all right? No, we're, we're still not good. Okay. All right, so a Buckeye fan, then I moved to Georgia and uh, spent the last 10 years there. And then after pastoring for a long time, our church was sending a bunch of people to the mission field. The last four years, we've had like 10 families go to the mission field, to, uh, to the South Pacific, and to South Africa, and to Nepal, and... The most exciting part of my ministry besides preaching was seeing missionaries get to the mission field, and now the Lord has opened a door for me to be with biblical ministries worldwide. Uh, You can remember that by BMW, like the car. Um, I don't drive a BMW, I drive a beat-up Ford, but you know, know, BMW will stick in your memory. And uh, now my job is to go around preaching and promoting missions, and uh, I have opportunities at conferences, at camps like this. I've been so excited to be here. And um, truly, listening to you sing, I feel like I've grown as a Christian just to know that things like this are happening. Um, Sometimes you feel like, you know, your own church or your own little small part of the world is all that you get to see. And um, to know that God has been doing this here in Iowa uh, since the 1950s, and it's just growing and getting better and better, I'm so encouraged to be with you. So you've already ministered to me tonight. And my hope is that through the week, I can be a blessing to you as well as we study Scripture. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit more about myself, my family. Let's see if this is on. Uh, There's my family. No, still not. There's my family. So uh, I have four daughters. They are 25, 23, 21, and 18. There was a time when I had four teenage daughters at once. Oceans of emotions at my house. I feel like we should all pray for me right now. Let's, no. Actually, being a dad of four daughters was the best. Um, spoil rotten. We're all very, very close, best friends. Um, they're not, you know, some of them are athletic. The one in the middle right next to me, my wife Lori is next to me on my left. And uh, we've been married for 26 years. Uh, she's been a blessing to me. It's a long time. I tell people 20 happy years isn't bad out of 26. But that's just a joke as well. So 26 years married. Uh, my, my daughter, Becca, is the oldest one. She's 25. Um, we tried athletics with her. A lot of basketball players out here. Who plays basketball out here? I saw a lot of you out there today. She tried to play basketball. And uh, eighth grade, she went out for the team. And she came home. She said, Dad, it went really well, but the coach says I need to work on my layovers. I'm like, baby, it's, it's a layup, but, you know, hang in there. Keep trying. And uh, the day before her first game, she said, Dad, I'm so nervous, I haven't even tried on my costume. And I said, you know, sweetie, 
piano is not a bad idea either. <laughs> she got in the game and just kind of stood there, you know, terrified for two minutes, trash time at the end of the game. And finally, I told her, I said, baby, if you just foul somebody, I'll give you five bucks. I just want you to do something. And she fouled somebody, and that was kind of the highlight of her basketball career. But, <laughs> but now her husband, Ray, uh, the other man in the picture, they've been married for three years, and uh, he's a basketball player, great athlete. And uh, I tried to hire him to be a youth pastor in our church. And uh, the more I talked to him, the more I liked him. But he already had a job. He couldn't leave it. So I'm talking to him. And I'm like, you know what? Just ask my daughter out for coffee. How about that? And um, he kind of argued with me that was a bad idea. I talked him into, hey, just take her to coffee. I'm not asking you to propose. And then I go and tell Be Becca. I said, honey, I just asked a guy to ask you out. You know, are you good with that? And she just, you know, she was humiliated, like, Dad, stop it. How could you? And then, you know, after chewing me out for a couple of minutes, she said, who is it? I said, it was Ray Holden. She's like, oh, good. All right. I, that works. <laughs> and, and now they're married. They're doing well. So um, one down. I'm looking for three other guys. So uh, I'll hold interviews this week. Um, the one on the right... The one on the right is probably taken. Does anybody here, he's an Iowa guy. Anybody know Zach Reed? You know Zach Reed. We need to talk and just make sure he's all right. But, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty serious. But the two on the left, you know, um, bring two goats and a cow or something and we'll talk. So that was not appropriate. I apologize. So that's my family. And, um, and kind of my life. Um, God's been very, very good to me. I love being at camp in part because um, the Lord worked in my life in such drastic ways when I was at camp, when I was a teenager. Um, I, I grew up in a Christian family, have great parents, but really was going the way of the world and making bad decisions, doing things I regret. And um, the Lord in his mercy kind of protected me and my brothers from ruining ourselves and eventually brought us to a church that is teaching the Bible, a great youth group, and would get us to camp. And uh, there was a camp in Colorado. It's no longer there. It was called the Wilds of the Rockies. And uh, eventually it folded. Uh, but the Lord used my counselors and other campers and the preaching of the word. And he changed my life. It's where I really got assurance uh, that I was truly a Christian by faith in Christ. And it's where God worked in my life to deal with sin and getting right with him and confession. And it really is where I began to get a heart to go into the ministry and to be a pastor. And I'm not saying that, that there's something magical about camp. You know, there, there's no sense in, in walking with God for a week at camp and then for 51 weeks you just do your own thing. You, you need to walk with God yourself. And uh, your parents can't make you godly, your counselors, your, your pastors can't make you godly. But when you're at camp, you're in, an, you're in an environment like this with 500 other teenagers that are here in the Bible and there's kind of a positive momentum, a peer pressure. And then God just speaks to us. We're hearing the Bible again and again and again, and God does a good work. So I'm praying for that this week. I'm praying for God to do something far beyond what we expect. And uh, specifically, I'm praying that God will bring lost people to know Christ as their Savior. If you don't yet know Jesus, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God will make you miserable until you come to trust Jesus, uh, that he'll put pressure on your conscience so that you say, I need to be saved. So I'm praying for salvation. I'm praying for Christians to grow, uh, that it'll be a bad week for the devil. And I'm praying that the Lord would bring some people to commit their lives to missions 
You know, out of a group this size, if, if a group this size, this, this is like four times the size of the disciples when Jesus ascended into heaven. There were about 120 disciples. And by the power of God, they turned the world upside down. The, the uh, possibilities of what God wants to do with you, with us, is immense. So I'm praying that God will do a great work. And uh, I'm praying that years from now, we'll look back at this week and just say, wow, God met with us. Uh, time and time again, we're in the Bible. God did a work. So why don't we actually begin our time in the Word and just pray, God, speak to us. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to pray and uh, clear the clutter from your brain, all the other stuff that happened today, and just pray for God to speak to you. Pray for me uh, that I'll get it right, that I'll handle the Bible well, and then pray that God would work in us. All right, so you pray, and after about 30 seconds of quiet prayer, then I'll pray. Lord, as we gather tonight around the Bible, I pray for you to do just a spectacular work. Show how mighty you are. Uh, Flex. Show us your power. It's been a delight to sing praises to you, to uh, hear the scriptures recited. Now, as we look to the word, help me to explain it with clarity and accuracy. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in people's hearts, give them attention, keep them from being distracted or weary. Uh, and, and open their eyes to be amazed by Jesus, to love him more, to want him more. Again, I pray for anyone who doesn't know Jesus that they'll be born again by coming to faith in Christ. I pray that Christians will grow in their relationship with you, will, will desire to serve you however you want them to, give you a blank check. God, what do you want me to do? I'm, I'm in. I pray even that you would, uh, through the week, challenge some people about, about ministry about giving their lives for something besides just the American dream or good job, vacation. I pray that they'll have a heart for serving you and finding delight and joy in that. So Lord of the harvest, as you commanded us to pray, I'm asking for more laborers. And uh, what a great week for you to do that. And uh, whether it's me or whether it's uh, camp staff or volunteers or campers, Lord, work in us and use your word. Now, Help us to apply ourselves and and really benefit from the Scripture, especially as we read John 4 together. And we'll be very jealous that the glory goes to nobody but you. So help us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in John 4 uh, for every message that I preach. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, you're going to know John 4 well. And uh, you're going to get acquainted with this character in John 4. There's two main characters. Of course, Jesus is the hero, uh, the protagonist, the main character. Uh, and then you have this Samaritan woman. We don't know her name, uh, but we know her history, and it's pretty bleak. Uh, sad, sad character. And uh, somebody said, you know, you know the parable of the good Samaritan? This woman is the bad Samaritan. But Jesus is going to engage her. And then we have a bunch of extras in this drama. The disciples are there, and they, they don't do a lot. You have all these people from a village called Sychar. And uh, they're going to have a revival come. It's amazing what God does here. But the main focus is on Jesus and this woman. I appreciate this painting. You know, there she is with her jar. Jesus is sitting on the well, like the Bible says. You look to the right of the picture, the disciples are going into town to buy lunch. Then they'll come back, just like the story says. And uh, I want you to leave this week and feel like you know this woman better. You know Jesus better. You know this chapter better. And 
and God has really applied it to your life. Uh, John 4 is a, is a book of the Bible that I love. Uh, several years ago, I wrote a book called The God Who Satisfies, and it's basically just drilling down into John 4 and learning lessons for life. And I want to tell you why I appreciate it so much. Before we read it, just some things to look for. And then we're going to read most of the chapter. Uh, this is one of the most pathetic characters in the entire scriptures. And it's such a moving record. Jesus is so compassionate. He meets somebody that's so immoral, kind of an outcast, uh, a, a pariah. Nobody wants to be around her. But Jesus does, because Jesus is so different than us. He loves being around uh, people that nobody else wants to be around, whether it's a leper or blind people or a woman caught in the very act of adultery. He's so compassionate. Uh, so it's a really moving story. The plot line's amazing. It really encapsulates uh, what God is doing in the world. What we're going to read in John 4 is the same thing that God wants to do in your life and through your life. He's going to move her from being lost and desperate and needy and broken and, and sad. And he's going to actually bring her salvation and satisfy the deep needs of her soul. And then he changes her. And by the end of the story, she has been the evangelist that is responsible for one of the great revivals of the New Testament. By the time she's done, you know, she goes back into town and the entire town is going to come to Christ. So this is what God is doing in the world. It's not just history. Uh, this is a picture of what God is doing now. It's a beautiful window, and we look through the story. The main thing we want to learn is about Jesus, so always focus on Jesus. He's the, he's the one that we should be amazed by. But it's not only a window, it's also a life-changing mirror. And I use this statement again and again. I'll say, I am a Samaritan woman. I am a Samaritan woman. Now, in the year 2022, to say that I'm a woman is you know, perhaps confusing for some. I'm not self-identifying as any kind of woman, not a Samaritan woman. But what do I mean by this? I'm a Samaritan woman. I, I totally relate to her. You know, I, I understand her. Let me put it to you this way. If you insert yourself into the story, you're not Jesus in this story. And the main lesson isn't that you need to be nicer to outcasts. So you be like Jesus. The main lesson in the story is, no, actually, you're very like this Samaritan woman. You're, you're going to be as messy, as confused, as thirsty, as directionless as she is, and Jesus is going to love on you in spite of yourself. So we're going to read this together. Tonight's message is just the, the first point that we're going to see is that Jesus seeks sinners. Jesus is kind of on the hunt. Jesus is after her to, to love her, to change her life, and it's, it's beautiful to watch. Now, I'm going to ask that we stand, and we're going to read Scripture tonight. I'm warning you, we're going to read 42 verses. It's a lot, but go ahead and stand. 42 verses. This will wake you up, and it shows respect for the Bible. Anybody who wants to be a preacher, let me just tell you, never shorten the Scripture reading so you can talk about the Bible more. Read the whole passage. It's the only part of the sermon that you're certain that you're getting right is when you're reading Scripture. So read a lot of Scripture. Let's read this story, get acquainted with them, and then we'll focus on the first nine verses tonight. But we'll read the whole thing. This is the Word of God. It's, it's absolutely true. It has no errors. It has authority. It's sufficient. It's the answer. Now let's read it and learn. John 4. 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he goes from North Israel, or from South Israel to North Israel, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was about noon. It was hot. And nobody else was there except for this one woman. So verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. There's prejudice and racism. So she's surprised that Jesus is different. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So she didn't understand, but he explains. She says, "Uh, where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself, as did his sons, his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she wants it, but she still doesn't really understand that he's talking about something spiritual. Jesus still will answer, and he says in verse 16, he said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In other words, let's change the subject. Stop talking about my dirty past. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, Jews, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. So she kind of shrugs like, you know, someday we'll find out when the Messiah comes. And Jesus gives her an answer that's more specific than he gave almost to anybody in the New Testament. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the promised Messiah. I'm the Savior. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? Let's take just a quick break. And uh, kudos to Peter. This is one time in his life where he didn't speak out and say something kind of ridiculous. So he wondered, but he just let it pass. Now, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have foods to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They totally missed it, just like she did. Jesus said to them, my food, he's kind of saying, my hunger, my desire is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, and lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Okay, here's the end of the story. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I mean, that is a high point to end. This is the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior of the Jews, not just the Savior of the respectable, not just the Savior of a certain select you know, few, but He's the Savior of the world, everybody. That's the God we serve. That's Jesus. What an amazing story. And uh, we'll dig into it for the next five days together. Be seated, please. Jesus seeks sinners. Jesus seeks sinners. Jesus is kind of on the hunt. He's, he's looking for them. He's not dodging them. She's not looking for him. He's looking for her. It starts, the story starts with this divine appointment. When we talk about a divine appointment, sometimes you have a conversation, you know, I might be in an airport or I might be, you know, doing some other uh, task and I have a conversation with somebody and you walk away and like, you know what? God wanted me to meet that person and I got to plant a gospel seed or I got to talk to somebody about ministry and, and the Lord's, you know, the Lord's working. God is a great multitasker. He's doing so much all the time. And sometimes I have a sense like, you know, the Lord just arranged for the two of us to be in the same place so that he could get something done. Well, that's going to happen here. I would say to you, you know, you come to camp and you're looking forward to all the activities and sports and, and you know, the fun is good. But, but for you, you have a divine appointment. God is allowing you to be here this week in your cabin with your leader, with your, your cabin mates hearing the Bible as it's taught, God, God's working in your life, all of you at once, doing different things. It's a divine appointment. The Jews had rejected Jesus, and they would throughout his ministry. So, you know, instead of being glad that people are getting saved, the Pharisees are jealous because Jesus has more followers than they have, and, they, you know, they're always moved by rival and ambition. And the Jews rejected him, and the story of the four Gospels is the Jews kept rejecting Jesus. I read John 1.11, and it kind of catches in your throat. When it's speaking about Jesus, it says, He came unto His own, and His own, what? They received Him not. Right? The Jews rejected Him. And Jesus says, you know, fine, I'm, I'm going to leave. And instead of going to the Jews, the, 
the chosen people of God, he's going to go to the Samaritans for a time. Jesus had to go through Samaria, it says. He had to go through Samaria. Now, we could say he had to go through Samaria because if you picture a map, all right, I'm gonna, we're, we're in the middle of the United States. Picture Memo. You know that character Memo on the map? Minnesota, Iowa, uh, Missouri, Alabama, Louisiana. Holding a tray. Arkansas, excuse me. I knew I was going to mess that up. And then he's holding a tray. It's Tennessee and Kentucky Fried Chick is on top. All right, so we might say Memo. To get from Missouri to Minnesota, you have to pass through Iowa. Okay, but actually you don't have to. You could go around. You could go into neighboring states if you really wanted to avoid Iowa. Jesus, to get, to get from Judea, southern Israel, to Galilee in northern Israel, he had to pass through Samaria in the middle. But no, some people were so prejudiced, they would actually walk around. So it's not just saying he had to travel through there to get where he was going. He had an appointment with this woman. He knows everything. He knows who she is. He knows her history. He doesn't have to ask. And he went there at this time of day to meet this lady. I like to say that God is the great missionary. You know, I'm excited about missions and, and taking the light to the darkness. But nobody seeks sinners like Jesus does. You know, we're just following his example. Luke 19.10, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He specifically said, I didn't come for people who think they're healthy. I came for sick people. I came for needy people. And Jesus is the one that's actually in pursuit of them. He has this divine appointment with this particular lady. But it's even better than that. Because in his conversation with her, Jesus is going to show what I call a colorblind mercy. The lady's shocked. Why are you talking to me? Because I know Jews like you, and the Jews I know hate Samaritans. You know, sometimes we think that racism is a new problem. You know, as an adult, as, a, as an older person, I'm sorry that you guys are living in such a crazy time. It's, it's crazy. I feel like our country has never been so fractured. That's not true. We've had a civil war, but sometimes it feels like we're on the verge of that. There's so much anger, you know, between, uh, between different ethnic groups or different political groups. There's so much division, and we kind of think it's a new thing, but it's not a new thing. People have always been full of hatred. People have always been prejudiced. People have always been racist. So there's a time in Jesus' life where his enemies smeared him by calling him a Samaritan. And it was like a four-letter word, like, oh, you're one of those people. They're so hated. But Jesus had no time for any of that. Jesus poked a hole in all of those, you know, those kind of unwritten rules of what uh, a self-respecting Jew should do. Jesus is like, no. I'm not going to be racist. I'm not going to be prejudiced. Jesus is going to ignore or cross over geographic barriers. So when I say he's a missionary, he's, li he's literally leaving his home and he's going to the region of Samaria. He's going to a, basically a different country in order to communicate the gospel. He's going to ignore ethnic barriers. The Jews hated the Gentiles. But they really hated Samaritans. And here's why. The Samaritans are kind of a half-breed. 
In the Old Testament, the year 722, Assyria attacked northern Israel and defeated them. So the, these Gentiles defeat the Jews, but rather than just exporting them like happened later with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys, the Assyrians said, we want you to mix, and they forced the Jews to marry other Assyrians. So they forced Jews and Gentiles to marry. The result was the Samaritans. So the Samaritans are, are just hated. They're kind of the outcasts of the world. But Jesus has no time for that. Jesus loves this woman. Jesus cares for her. And, and he's, not, he's not put off by the color of skin or, you know, ethnicity. I say ethnic barriers. I don't even use, I don't even use the term race. You know, people talk to me about, you know, what do I think about about somebody marrying a person from a different race. I'm like, well, I'm opposed. Like a man marrying a cat? Ooh, yuck. Okay, because, oh, but, but if you mean like, you know, a human race that is Caucasian marrying a human race that is African-American, I'm, I'm great with that. That's beautiful. There's only one race. I don't even like the term that there's different races. There are different ethnicities. But really, we're all the same. We're created by God in the image of God. We're all the same in the sense that we all have fallen under sin, and we all need salvation. And we're the same in the sense that if we come to Christ, I am more like people of a different ethnicity that know Jesus than other overweight, dad bod, 50-year-olds uh, who are white but don't know Jesus. I'm, I'm with the people that know Jesus. So we're brought together by the gospel. Jesus crosses ethnic barriers, crosses religious barriers that the Samaritans had a false religious system. They set up a false temple. And, and Jesus says, you know what? You still need to hear the truth. He goes after her, crosses gender barriers. And all I mean by that is he's talking to a woman. Do you remember she asked him a question? Why are you talking to a woman of Samaria? Women were valued in that society. You know, you would have Pharisees, these, these pompous religious leaders, their wives would have to walk behind them like five steps. You didn't speak to your wife in public. You know, it, it, was, it was degrading to women. I think because, maybe because I have four daughters, things like that make me so angry. Christianity has been great for women. And Jesus, Jesus went out of his way. It's not only her, but it might be Mary Magdalene where there were others, and they supported Jesus financially. All the men ran away when Jesus is crucified, but women were at the foot of his cross. None of the men showed up on Easter Sunday. It was the women. Jesus, Jesus valued women unlike the rest of society. Cross educational barriers. She was, she's pretty ignorant. He says, you guys don't know what you're talking about, but you need the truth anyway. He loved her anyway. He ignored social or reputation barriers. Let me talk to you just for a second about this woman. You know, we're going to find out that she's been married and divorced five times. She's shacked up with a guy now, not married, just living with him. She's by herself. She, she is a social pariah. She's an outcast. Now, let me tell you something. If you're an outcast from the Samaritans, you're an outcast from a whole, a whole group of outcasts. You know, this is about as bad as it can get. 
why is this woman in the heat of the day getting water from the well by herself? Why not go in the morning when all the other ladies from town were there? Well, if you have five ex-husbands in town, what else do you have? It's math. You have five ex-mothers-in-law, five, 10, 15 ex-sisters-in-law. She's so embarrassed. She doesn't want to see anybody. You know, she's so ashamed. She doesn't want to interact with people. So in the heat of the day, when everybody else is in the shade somewhere, now's the time to go get the water when I won't run into anybody. I won't have any awkward conversations. It could hurt Jesus' reputation to be seen with a woman of this repute. You know, this, this looks like a lady that is borderline prostitute. So the disciples come and see Jesus talking to her, and they're like, wow, why, why is he doing that? You know, Jesus, people are going to talk. Jesus is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. But he doesn't take this attitude of holier than thou. I mean, he is holier than you. But he's so compassionate. He's so merciful. He spent most of his time with sinners and outcasts. You know, he's, he's different He's different than we might think. So gracious. You know, you think about the people that Jesus spent his time with. I've mentioned, you know, he'll touch a leper. He'll, he'll talk to blind people. He'll, hear, he'll heal a paralyzed person. He'll, he'll raise the dead. He welcomes a prostitute who washes his feet with her hair and the Pharisees are, you know, wagging their finger at him. And he says, no, 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 I've forgiven her much and she loves me much. He's so compassionate. He goes to the house of an outcast like Zacchaeus. Everybody murmurs and they murmur and they say, Jesus, you know what he is? He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And they say that as an accusation. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And we say it as like a hymn. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Hallelujah. What a savior. I'm so glad that Jesus welcomes outcasts like the Samaritan woman, like you, like me. A friend of mine, J.D. Crowley, is a missionary in Cambodia. He says, the gospel drives a cross-shaped dagger into the heart of racism. I'll tell you something I admire about, about your generation is a complete intolerance of racism. You know, I hope that's the case. I hope that's something that you just say, man, when somebody's being bullied over something like that, it, I'm going to step up and say something. The gospel puts a, puts a dagger in the heart of racism. Jesus had no time for all of that hatred. Now, quickly, I'm going to give you an insight and, you know, here's why you come to camp to hear preaching. What came before John 4? Concentrate. What came before John 4? Amazing. Where are you going to get insights like that? Before John 4 was John 3. John 4, we have the Samaritan woman. John 3, do you remember who we have? Jesus says, you must be born again. Who'd she say that to? That's Nicodemus. And you, you have the poles of humanity. They, they could not be more different. I think on purpose, they're set side by side 
And, you know, how, how are they different? All right, they're a different gender. Again, a lot of insight. I study hard to come up with these things. Um, he's a Jew. She's a Gentile. He is the teacher in Israel. He is like the most respected man in Israel. And she is an outcast even in Samaria. They're so different. She is, she is known to be kind of rebellious and dirty. He is supposed to be religious. But how are they the same? They're both sinners. They're both lost. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, basically he's saying, I don't care if you're a famous teacher. You're dead. You are spiritually dead. You don't have any life. You need to be born again. Because right now, your soul is dead. You're one of those whited sepulchers. You might look pretty, but inside it's death. you got to be born again. And both Nicodemus, the respected Jew, and, and this Samaritan woman who is, you know, from the other side of the tracks in every possible way, they both need Jesus. It said that the ground is level at the cross. We're all the same. We're all the same. Okay, let me, let me just tell you, I'm glad you came to a Christian camp. I loved your singing. I'm glad you have your Bibles. But you're not here because you're the good people. We are not the good people. When Paul identifies himself in 1 Timothy, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief, the biggest, the worst. We're just sinners. And instead of being, you know, shocked by the sins of others, we should be shocked by our own sins and thank God for his mercy. Finally, we come to what I call a relentless pursuit. This is a, this is a miniature of what God is doing all over the world, all through the years, all through the centuries. Jesus is in pursuit. So he loves the woman in spite of herself. You know, there, there's nothing about her that was like, oh, he saw, you know, he saw a spark of potential. No, she was just lost and sinful and hopeless. She had nothing to give and, and Jesus loved her anyway because that's who Jesus is. If you don't understand Jesus that way, if you think that Jesus mostly went around like yelling at people, you're missing what the Bible says about Jesus. He's so compassionate. We know John 3, 16, John 3, 17 says, that he did not come to condemn, but that the world through him might be saved. He's so awesome, so merciful, so compassionate. He's pursuing this woman even as she evades him at every turn. You know, he starts talking and, and she dodges. All right, go call your husband. Oh, I'm, I'm not married. Well, technically that's true. You're living in sin and you've been married and divorced five times. And then she says, well, let's talk about where we should worship. I think you're a prophet and, you know, let's, and, and she keeps trying to run away. He is more determined to save her than she is to be lost. That's just how God is. And it's always been that way, actually. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when they heard God coming, they didn't run to him and ask for help. They ran away and hid and he pursued them. God is so merciful. He came to seek and to save the lost, her, me, you. Jesus perpetually sought the outcast, not the most popular, not the big shot, not the high priest, came to needy people. 
And he'll save you if you know you're needy. We often say Jesus is, you know, omnipotent, omniscient. We have all these omni words. I like to say Jesus is omni-gracious. He's so, he's so gracious. He's so merciful, so compassionate. Began by saying, I'm a Samaritan woman. She reminds me of a character that we sometimes see in a novel that they say is an everyman. You know, not, not amazingly brilliant, not smart, not rich, not, not Batman. You know, his superpower is money. Now, there, there's some characters in movies, they're just normal everybody. This woman is an everybody. She is every one of us. And so we end by just pressing you into the story. Like her, we all are sinful. I, I doubt that any of you have been married and divorced five times. But you're sinful. Full of anger, full of pride, full of lust, deception, whatever it might be. You, you know. I mean, I really don't have to convince you of your sin. You know it well. She knew it well, actually. Like her, we're all sinful. Like her, we're ashamed. You know, we don't want anybody to know what we're really struggling with. We might not hide out from our friends, but some of you do. Some of you just get, get isolated and alone, hurt. Like her, we might be confused. You know, she didn't really understand. She knew she was looking for something, but she couldn't find it. She was, she was so miserable, so pathetic. The main description that Jesus will have of her is that she was so thirsty. And we'll talk about that. Why, why did he choose thirst? I, I would have done something different if I were Jesus. It's never a good idea to say if I were Jesus. But you know, I, would have, I would have handled this differently. Jesus said to her, if you knew who I am... You wouldn't run away and hide. You wouldn't be ashamed. You wouldn't want to end your life. You would ask me to satisfy your soul, and I would do it. And by the end of the story, he does. You know, you all come in. I, I don't know you. I know people like you. I know my family. But you arrive here and, and you have your own burdens, your own struggles, your own griefs, your own frustrations, anxieties. You're not unlike this woman. And all of this is true of her and it's true of you and it's true of me. I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Samaritan woman. And tonight I'll end with this. Like her. You are deeply loved, just like her. Jesus is interested in you, not because you're the smartest person, not because you're, you're athletic or you have a great potential in your future. Or, you know, wouldn't he be lucky to have you on his team? You're a mess. And Jesus loves you just like that. He loves you just like you. It would be impossible for Jesus to love you more than he loves you right now. There is nothing you can do to make Jesus love you less. There is nothing you can do to make Jesus love you more. He, he, just, he loves people and he loves broken people. Like her, 
like Nicodemus, who covered it a little bit better, and like you and me. Jesus seeks sinners. He loves them in spite of themselves, and that's how he feels about you and me. That's a start. Lord, use your word tonight. As a starting point, just just amaze us at the compassion of Jesus. This woman was not too small for his attention. Her sins were not too big for him to cleanse and and forgive. And Lord, if he loves somebody like that, we know he loves people like us. I thank you for the love of Jesus. I pray tonight, whatever else happens, I pray that everyone in the room would have a biblical and and deep-rooted confidence. Jesus loves me. I don't have to earn it. He loves me in spite of me. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for accepting me as I am with all my big mess. I pray tonight, Lord, you'll lay a foundation that we can build on all week. Thank you for the love of Christ. We come to you as a bunch of broken, dirty, confused, ashamed Samaritan women. We need you so much. Thank you for accepting us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.